you're listening to the Down East Mike Podcast, the quirky little podcast from Maine. And now, your host, Down East Mike. Dee 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 dee. Good morning, everybody. This is Down East Mike of the world famous Down East Mike Podcast, coming to you live from Down East Maine, way down east, out in Lemoyne Bay, out in the island, out here, waiting for. Waiting for winter and then waiting for spring, but we're always waiting for a change of seasons. This is Down East Mike, episode 110, news and commentary for Saturday, November 25th, 2023. Seems like this date should be significant for some reason. I can't remember. Remember when you used to have everybody's birthdays written on a calendar on the refrigerator and you could just go look at it and... And at a glance, you could see what was going on. And of course, today, no one has a calendar on the refrigerator. They don't print calendars anymore. But maybe we could go back to sundials and calendars, and we could keep better track of stuff. Uh, our motto here, if you're new to the podcast, is some of this is whimsy, some of this is true, and the interpretation of it all is entirely up to you. We also like to ask if you knew that Downey's Mike contains no mean words, just Wholesome goodness from Down East Maine, a historical, literary, auditory candy store. And did you hear the bells on the door when you came in? That little running we do is just to get warmed up a bit so we don't stumble too much over our words. Uh, Today's episode, all about the swine flu, 1976. The live Wire Fire from 1976. It's a sad story, but worth reading. It's notable. Uh, Israel warning Syria. That was in 1976. The headlines of yesterday are the headlines of today. We have the illness of the instant mammal of the moment and more. Let's get to, uh, first of all, what do we have? Oh, happy birthday to Magnus of Olympia, Washington. He's two years old. He's cute as a button, very energetic, and it's amazing that a two-year-old can walk or, or run like four or five miles a day and still have energy to play after that. But we love him so much. Happy birthday, Magnus. Illness of the instant. Oh, dear. Uh, a beach walker's bottom. This is something that you don't get before you go to the beach, but you get it while you're there. We encountered this, uh, well, yesterday, as a matter of fact. Uh, beach Walker's Bottom, uh, it, it sets on, it, it's on setting, and, it, and it's irregular based, not on the shape of your bottom, but what it is that you're sitting on on the beach. So usually on the beach, you're going to either sit on the sand or you're going to sit on some object that's some object that flotsam and jetsam, something that's washed up on the shore. And uh, yesterday it happened to be this kind of spindly log. It was covered with sand. It was eroded in different parts. And the way you sat on it, uh, it just... It, it hurt in different places at the same time. None of it felt good, but you had to sit there because it was the only thing that was above the sand. So you got sandy, and when, then when you got up, you were pinched in such a way that you had very, very strange walking habits for the next 10 minutes. Beach walkers bottom. Not much of an illness of an instant, but it's going to have to do for today to get us warmed up anyway. Uh, Let's roll it back to uh, this day in 19, 
76. Uh, it was all about the swine flu. A case of swine flu was confirmed. A vaccine shipment was ordered. This is out of uh, Jefferson City, Missouri. The federal health officials Tuesday confirmed the fall's first case of swine flu and ordered an emergency shipment of 1.2 million doses of the vaccine to meet an increased demand from Missouri citizens. Can you see them lining up and just demanding that vaccine? The CDC in Atlanta, Georgia, said laboratory blood samples taken from a Concordia, Missouri, telephone linesman, I thought they were all in Wichita, it indicated the upper respiratory disease he contacted last month was indeed swine flu. I'd like to see that Q-tip. The Missouri case was the first confirmed surfacing out of disease since last February when 12 cases and one death occurred at Fort Dix. What's in Fort Dix? It wouldn't be like a research facility. That's conspiracy. Officials cautioned about speculation of a possible epidemic. A comparison of blood specimens, blah, blah, in October. When a patient was acutely ill with the disease, compared to another in November when the patient was convalescing, showed an increase in the antibody count from 1.10 to 1.80, a fourfold rise in antibodies. Therefore, it's swine flu. I wonder if they look at it under a microscope and it's like a little pig face looking at them. I think that's what they're trying to say. Uh, only 17.6% of Missouri's 3.2 million persons considered eligible for swine flu vaccine have been immunized since the program began in September. 20% of the 20,000 population in Lafayette County have been immunized. Swine flu. Or bringing it home to Maine, in Dexter, Maine, the swine flu inoculation program at the Dexter Regional High School Sunday afternoon attracted... 1,384 persons from Dexter and the surrounding area, as well as several from out of state. Uh, they acted like it was a honey pot with bees attracted to honey. Arrangements were made by public health nurse Janet Rines. Those given shots were from Bangor. Local doctors each gave two hours of their time at the scene. Local nurses and other people assisted. Water. That sounds like a, a movie set almost. We had a tragic story out of Augusta uh, in this day in 1976. A live wire fire killed two people, two neighbors, electrocuted early Tuesday as they fought a grass fire set off by a downed high-tension wire. Medical examiner Dr. Maurice Guillemette said the victims were Richard Gagney, 33, and Raymond Dosty, 45, who lived on the old Belgrade Road in a rural section of the city. Uh, insider's tip, that's all there is in Augusta's rural sections. The medical examiner said that Gagney saw the grass fire in a field near his home about 5 a.m., he took a portable firefighting tank with him to the scene. He was killed when he came in contact with the fallen wire. A few minutes later, Dosty saw the fire from his home. He tried to rescue his neighbor. He also was electrocuted. A spokesman for the Central Maine Power Company said high winds downed the live wire. Power outage was reported in the area by CMP shortly before the two men died. CMP spokesman said the wire carried 7,200 volts. 
the mishap occurred a short distance from the main Veterans Memorial Cemetery. And that was accompanied by a picture of two, two guys standing there in the field looking at the spot where the two men were electrocuted. Tragic fire this day, 1976. Also on this day, the international news of troops movement was eyed in Lebanon. Commanders of the Syrian-dominated Arab peacekeeping force met Tuesday to discuss uh, stationing Arab troops in southern Lebanon, despite Israel's warnings against such a move. Israel has described its positioning of additional troops, tanks, and heavy equipment along the frontier as part of a series of precautionary measures to prevent Syria and other Arab forces from changing the military balance in south Lebanon. That's too bad. They were, they were still having their troubles over there then. Oh, we found a great recipe here. We had to read this to you. Some of these recipes from 1976 are a bit, a bit staggering, and you have to read them and kind of absorb them to try to understand what were they thinking. Fisherman's omelet, two tablespoons of butter, three eggs. Not, we're off to a pretty good start with this one. Three tablespoons of milk. All right, that's not harmful. Uh, one-eighth teaspoon Worcestershire sauce and one-eighth a teaspoon of pepper. Melt the butter in the skillet. All right, we can do that. Beat eggs, milk, Worcestershire sauce, and pepper together. Pour into skillet when hot enough to sizzle a drop of water. As egg mixture cooks, stir gently with the bottom of the fork, taking care not to pierce the bottom of the omelet. When the top of the mixture begins to thicken, add tangy tomato filling. Now, the tangy tomato filling we're going to get to in just a second, but that certainly bodes ominously towards the end of this recipe, doesn't it? Use a spatula to turn the filled omelet and flip onto a warm plate. In other words, get the plate out of the cabinet that's on the back wall of the house and put it in the oven first because it's not going to be warm if you take it from that cabinet space. Top with a prepared cheese sauce if desired makes one serving. Nothing in Maine is served without cheese on it. All right, here's the tangy tomato filling, and here's where things go a little bit sideways. Half a cup of green pepper, slivered, I don't know if that's an official chef's term. It might be a down east term. Half a cup of chopped onion, two tablespoons of butter. So now we're up to two tablespoons of in the omelet and then two in the filling. So four tablespoons of butter. Two cups of tomato sauce. Why didn't they just go with three, huh? Two cans of sardines packed in oil. Mother only buys them packed in water or something. Drain sardines, quickly saute green pepper and onion in butter. Stir in tomato sauce and bring to a quick boil. Add several whole drained sardines to one half the omelet. Pour one quarter cup of sauce over the sardines and fold the omelet over to cover the filling. My goodness. Makes four servings. So that's the fisherman's omelet with tangy toma tomato filling. Sardines and eggs in an omelet to start your day. Uh, don't say I didn't warn you. Commissioners uh, discuss vandalism to toilets. Oh, this wasn't in our headlines, but it's a kind of a bonus story. 
Perhaps nothing comes, nothing which comes under the jurisdiction of the commissioners of the Penobscot County takes quite as much abuse as the toilets and urinals at the county jail in Bangor. This is from 1976 as well. These critical receptacles are often the exclusive focus for all the rage and frustration to which a good many prisoners are prone. They are pounded, smashed, banged, bent, and plugged up time and time again. This past year, the county spent some $600 in replacing misused toilets and urinals at the jail. What would $600 in in toilets and urinals get you today? Not too much. This information came out Tuesday in the course of a budget session of the county commissioner's meeting in Bangor. It is a move towards what Commissioner William A. Cox Jr. called greater accountability on the part of the county, and the commissioners have been meeting with each department head in turn to study all present and anticipated expenses. Commissioner Crosman said, we're getting right down to the needles and the pins. He sounds kind of mad there, doesn't he? Uh, Houston had detailed the damage wrought at the jail. Commissioners discussed possible alternatives. Cox suggested replacement of the equipment with items made of extruded aluminum. So you want to make your toilets out of the same stuff that UFOs are made out of. We know they can make it through space. In spite of its high cost, he said, it is much more vandalism-resistant than conventional porcelain. Who hasn't seen a movie where the villain gets smacked over the head with a piece of a porcelain toilet? Houston agreed, but the county had tried out some aluminum toilets with a baked enamel finish and had experienced difficulties. The drain cleaner stripped the finish off. Besides, tough as the toilets are, they bend like hell. The prisoners jump all over them. The discussion ended inconclusively, of course, with Cox suggesting even more expensive stainless steel equipment is yet another attorney. Boy, he liked to spend money. Funny, he didn't end up being governor. On the matter of heat and fuel, they went on about that. Uh, We just don't know what those Arabs are going to do. Cox again here. He suggested that the county play it safe this winter and contract for an additional $3,000 worth of fuel. In other words, enough to heat my house for a couple weeks. Last winter, the county spent $27,000 for Bunker C fuel oil for a central heating plant in downtown Bangor. A total of $29,000 been tentatively allocated under the proposed budget. But at Cox's urging, the commission agreed to make it $30,000. Oh, this cock guy, we got to do a podcast just on him and his ability to spend money. Uh, Scow Hegan, 1976, the news director of the Central Maine Morning Sentinel office on Madison Avenue, Scow Hegan, great town. He here surprised two young males who were rifling desks as he entered the building Sunday. Richard Plummer, at 3.40 p.m., opened the front door of his office and found the two individuals going through the desk. They fled out a rear door through which they apparently had entered by using a screwdriver. The culprits made off with three rolls of wheat pennies valued at $2.55 and a $7 roll of silver dimes and nickels which was valued at $17.50. Every desk in the office was attacked except except plumbers. I don't want to throw shade on plumber there, but it sounds like he stole that money. I bet he took it. 
Let's roll it back to this day in 1884. Uh, there was a, a murder added to the main list, the deed of an old town Indian at Northeast Cary fears that it may prove a double homicide. Uh, Tuesday night, a young Indian named Chaz, Chaz Nicholas, and a man named John Bridge were at a house in Northeast Cary owned by one Luchi Luch, playing cards and drinking. Nothing good ever came of that. A dispute arose and Charles Nicholas attempted to whip Bridge, but in the fight it was himself whipped. Nicholas, the young man's father, was present and seeing the result of the row, picked up his rifle. He went outdoors, he pointed the rifle through the window and shot Bridge dead. The next morning he started through the woods and made his escape. News of the affair was carried through the woods to Kineo and Chaz Nicholas went to Greenville. That's his version of the affair. Old Nicholas is about 58 years of age. Bridge was unmarried. Nicholas went to Greenville and started Saturday afternoon on the train for Old Town. At Dover, he was arrested by Sheriff Poole and held for examination. Some, think that, some people think that young Nicholas is a guilty party and that the old man fled to shield him. There were no witnesses to the affair, and it's very hard to obtain any evidence. But then there's another version of the occurrence, and this is another story in the same paper. They give another version. The details of what will perhaps prove to be the most awful tragedy in the history of Piscataquis County, as told by one of the participants, Charles Nicholas, who was arrested at Dover Saturday, he was while at his home in Old Town. That's all that's known of the affair at the time. Thomas Nicholas and his son Charles are two Penobscot Indians who live at Kineo during the summer seasons as guides. Last Monday, they started on a hunting and trapping expedition to the head of the lake. And Tuesday, they met John Bridge, who was also a guide. They all drank, and then they went to the West Branch house about two miles away, where they got even more liquor. During the evening, while playing cards, Bridge struck young Nicholas and knocked him down and said, Don't rise, or I will kill you, and then struck him again with a pair of boots, rendering him senseless. When he recovered consciousness, he saw the dead body of Bridge in the kitchen where it had been dragged from the office and was being laid out by Bridge's brother, an employee at the hotel. Nicholas inquired for his father, and the brother of the dead man told him not to worry about his father as he was cared for. All of his father's baggage was as it had been left in the office, except the rifle, which was gone. And then Nicholas started on foot Thursday morning. He walked to Kineo, which is about 30 miles away, arriving there on Friday, where he told the story. He took his wife, who was there, and left for Old Town. And he was detained on arrival at this place and remained until some hearing can be held. His head is bandaged. It shows the marks of having been badly punished. He saw nothing of his father afterward. And the supposition at present is that Nicholas Sr. shot Bridge and was then himself shot and disposed of by Bridge's friends. Uh, officers will leave at once to find other witnesses potentially and obtain all possible evidence should the weather come off cool. The ice may interfere with the steamers on the lake and possibly some days will lapse before any more particulars can be known. Quite the mystery there. It almost sounds like an episode of Clue or something. 
uh, there was a big storm on this day. It was the gale, actually, a couple days prior. The gale of Sunday evening was very heavy in Ellsworth, the schooners, Alavilia, Abigail Haynes, Red Rover, and Banner, which were anchored below the mouth of Ellsworth River. They were dragged ashore, and all are somewhat damaged. Must have been quite the storm. Some vessels broke away from Jordan's Wharf and drifted across the river to Bonzi's Wharf, where they collided with the schooner, the city of Ellsworth, dam damaging her badly. Uh, houses and trees were blown down, story out of Taunton, Mass. Uh, damage by the gale last night was great among fences, outhouses, and trees. Two new houses in the course of construction on Winthrop Street belonging to A.O. Packard were blown down and C.E. Richmond's carriage house was demolished. And in Foxborough, Mass., the gale of last night did considerable damage in Norfolk County. Trees were uprooted, fences and chimneys blown down in many places, and in Foxborough, a man named Simmons was killed. He had recently been erecting a greenhouse and went out during the night to see if everything was secure and was struck by a sash or piece of timber and injured so badly that he lived about two hours. I am kind of rattling on, but this next story is still good, so we got to get to it. Uh, this is a, a magnetic storm. They're talking about the storm, and they're speculating on why people sleep no better on Sunday night. It was noted by many that apart from the rattle and the rumble of the blinds and chimney pots and the whistling of the branches and the slapping of the tattered campaign flags, and the swish of the flying rain against the windows all night long Sunday, an atmospheric influence seemed abroad in the air that made folks wakeful and restless. I will venture, said a physician Monday morning, that more people passed a wakeful night Sunday than at any time previous for a year. This does not include the immense number of young ladies who sit up regularly Sunday evening with gentlemen callers, all of whom delayed a trifle longer, undoubtedly, to listen to the roar of the rain and wind. The fish, physicians ascribed the restlessness to an atmospheric or magnetic influence, and he noted also a peculiar variation in the magnetic needle. What physician stays up at night looking at the magnetic needle? There seems to be no doubt that a magnetic storm, often very severe when wholly silent, comes in the uh, train of the winds and rain. The most serious damage by the wind is the lifting up of the tin roof on the continental mills in this city, being Auburn, on the water side towards the river. The tin was curled up like a web of the continental sheeting, white and shining on the underside in the morning sun on Monday. Numerous blinds and bricks from the chimney tops were blown away. Several windows were smashed. The rain was especially heavy in the country. At North Auburn, it was one of the heaviest rains for the year. All the night, the two cities were haunted with the voice of the creaking sign and the slamming blind. Okay, so that's enough about that storm. Um, quick story on the, uh, the Widow Island, the main coast. This more of the flu stuff, but this is from 1896. I think they were talking about flu. We'll get to it. The Surgeon General, in his report, says... Residents near Portsmouth, New Hampshire, having earnestly protested to the Secretary of the Navy against the presence of infected vessels in the harbor, 
The Surgeon General proceeded under instructions of the Secretary in August to look for a desirable location among the islands on the coast of Maine for a quarantine station. The Lighthouse Board tendered the use of Widow Island in Penobscot Bay for that purpose, and the Surgeon General found it well suited. It's about 15 acres in size, easily accessible from the sea, and has a safe anchorage. Dr. Grinnell recommends building a wharf and the erection of a small hospital with necessary offices at a cost of $30,000. Very simple constructions of wooden canvas will then be sufficient to protect the crew of an infected vessel at a safe distance from the hospital building. On the arrival of the infected vessel with yellow fever, for example, the charge of the island in Anchorage will be turned over to the officers of the vessel and the keeper withdrawn. Uh, Out of Paris, the Sanitary Commission had ceased to hold daily sessions. The cholera epidemic is considered at end. Although they did talk about 19 deaths from cholera in Paris the day before. Lots of stuff going on there. One last little tidbit from our 1896 paper. We read that someone has collected 45 kinds of wood in Maine. In our boyhood, we collected in South Hiram 93 kinds, and we labeled them. Once in a while, and sometimes twice, our father would collect the lumberous variety of birch and label us. I don't know what that's all about. Okay, it's time for our Mammal of the Moment, and it's actually an extinct one, but we had to look this up. The sea mink, Nigali macrodon, a recently extinct species of mink, that lived on the eastern coast of North America around the Gulf of Maine on the New England seaboard. It was most closely related to the American mink, the Nigali vison, with continuing debate about whether or not the sea mink should be considered a subspecies of the American mink or species of its own. The main justification for a separate species is the size difference between the two minks, but other distinctions have been made, such as its redder fur. The only known remains are bone fragments unearthed in North American shell middens, and its actual size is speculative based largely on tooth remains. So we found in the proceedings of the United States National Museum, Smithsonian Institution, a story of the uh, extinct sea mink by Richard Manville a century ago. This is from 1966. A century ago, along the coast of New England, there appears to have lived a large, distinctive mustelid, variously known as the sink or seashore mink, the sea, sea or seashore mink, the giant or big mink, bull mink, saltwater mink, shell heap mink, or ancient mink. It long since has slipped into oblivion, leaving such a fragmentary record that its true nature is largely a mystery. While the present concern for large and endangered species similarly threatened with extinction, it seems appropriate to summarize our knowledge of this former member of the American fauna. So general description along the Atlantic coast from Maine to New York are thousands of shell heaps or kitchen middens from a few square yards to an acre or so in extent. These middens were produced by Indian encampments dating back to pre-Columbian times. 
They have long excited interest and are still being explored. And this was in 1966. In one such shell heap at Brooklyn, Hancock County, Maine, on the western shore of Blue Hill Bay, Blue Hill Bay the fragmentary skull of an unusually large mink was unearthed in, nine, in uh, sorry, 1897. Uh, this type specimen consists, and they go on about the, the teeth and the, and the skull size and that sort of thing. Uh, subsequently, many other skeletal remains of Macrodon have been recovered from old Indian sites along the New England coast. Evidently, the sea mink served as food for the Indians. Loomis reported that every skull has the brain case broken and lost. Loomis uh, characterized his mink as large and heavily built, and they talk about the skull size again. Teeth were typical of the genus, genus but stouter and heavier. Um, Norton described a specimen from Goose Island in the collection of the Portland Society of Natural History as showing a well-pronounced uh, crest and again more technical terms for the uh, skull uh, we want to get to the yeah the, the probable range was along the Atlantic seaboard from southeastern Nova Scotia to the coast of Connecticut it probably is now impossible to document records records from all of this area but certainly the seaming once occurred along most of the coasts of Maine and Massachusetts so here's where we get to a nice little story. They include material from Miss Fanny Hardy Ekstrom, the daughter of Mandy Hardy. We know Mandy. It was custodian of her grandfather's and father. The daughter was the custodian of her grandfather's and father's business records from 1835 to 1890. She was well acquainted with the large seashore mink and recalled seeing it when she was a child in the 1870s in Maine. The Abnaki Indians called it Musi Besu, meaning wet thing. Mink skins commanded their highest price, about $10 for the top quality, at the close of the Civil War, and this, Miss Ekstrom believed, led to the animal's extermination. She wrote further in 1935 as follows. There is question whether all mink that lived along the shore were the big sea mink. Were there two kinds here? I do not remember it if there were. I had a very practical acquaintance with birds for many years while my father was collecting his series, and I often observed the tendency of restricted island forms, or those peculiar to the seacoast, to run larger and darker than the inshore subspecies. Why should these mink all be redder and larger if there were two species on the same territory? The variation was constant. My own opinion is that there were not two species of mink on our coast, but an extra large subspecies, most highly developed on swans and Marshall's islands. My father laughed at the inferences drawn from a single skull. As to their being styled species, Macrodon, Big Tooth, of course, uh, of course an animal twice as large as another of the same sort would have a bigger skull and bigger teeth. This is only an individual difference. I see no reason for making a species out of this mink, although it was a stable variety. Father could tell some eight or ten different local forms of mink, and he thought several entitled to as good a specific standing 
as the seashore mink. Um, they also have it um, from uh, Captain Rodney Sadler of Bar Harbor, 1934. He recalled seeing the bull mink as late as perhaps 1920 swimming from one island to another in the Sorrento region. It made its home on the ocean front among the rocks of the seawall piled up by the surf. Its den always had two entrances. An adult and four young, which Sadler estimated to be three or four weeks old, were seen along the beach of Sisters Island in August. This was 40-odd years ago. The young were very attractive, lighter, to, lighter in color than the dark brown adult. The bull mink were said, were said to feed almost entirely on fish. The most common remains about their dens were of toad sculpin and horned pout. Uh, in 1954, they stated they had been re reported in association with the banded snail on the outer islands. Probably mussels and other shellfish also contributed to their diet. Uh, Alan from 1942 subscribes to the view that in earlier times only the large sea mink occurred in the eastern part of the Gulf of Maine, probably ranging as far as southern Nova Scotia. Those are some great stories. I like that story about the sea mink. I think it's fascinating. you got to wonder if it's still around. Let's look at the forecast and then we'll send you out to have a great weekend. Uh, for Saturday today, the 25th, it's sunny with a high near 32. Northwest wind 5 to 10 miles per hour. Becoming southwest in the afternoon. For tonight, partly cloudy with a low around 22. And then for Sunday, mostly sunny with a high near 42. Calm wind becoming south around 5 in the afternoon. Uh, looks like Monday will be some rain in the morning, the clear in the afternoon. But then the rest of the week, uh, mostly sunny with uh, seasonal temperatures. Um, highs around uh, 30, 39 or 40. That's, I guess that's seasonal, yeah. Well, until next time, this is Down East Mike. I'm wishing you and your loved ones a day that is full of grace, love, and kindness. We'll see you.
Everybody getting seasick. Everybody getting seasick now. Seasick. Sick. 